Well, are you ready for a word from the Lord? All right. Are you sure? Because we're in the book of James, and um, he swings a mighty big baseball bat. And so I'm just going to tell you that up front. James has been doing a number on me over these last couple weeks, and um, so I'm only here to share what he has for us to look at. Um, So I'd invite you to Take your Bibles out if you have them, and turn with me to James. We're in the second chapter. That's where we'll be uh, this morning. And last week, we spent some time talking about the challenge that James lays out for all of us throughout. It permeates his whole letter to his church. And the, what under, the, the underlying message of the whole book is that you can't just listen to the word. You can't just be hearers. You have to be doers. You have to put it into practice. Uh, simply studying it and reading it, it isn't good enough. He repeatedly says that faith without faithful activity isn't really authentic faith. And so throughout his whole letter, it's a good thing it's brief, right? <laughs> throughout his whole letter, he is moving us along in that direction, that true belief yields action, moving from talk to action. That's kind of the tagline for our whole series here. When I read Scripture, I ask, well, in general, in life, I ask all sorts of questions about everything. And so one one of the questions, when I read the letter that James wrote here, one of the questions that I ask is, what was going on in his church that would provoke him to write these things? I think that's a fair question. And you can read, you can ask that question of Paul's letters. You can actually ask that of the Gospels. And, you know, why, why did they write these words? Why was this instruction necessary? And apparently, the people that, that James was around thought they were righteous because they heard the Word of God spoken over them. They would go to church and um, listen to the word. They would get into the religious activity, if you will. They, they knew when to show up. They, maybe they figured that showing up to church a couple Sundays a month was, was good enough, and, you know, they, they knew when to say amen or not to say amen. They knew, oh, yeah, that was good, Pastor. And, uh, you know, that even, when they were, even when they were worshiping, you know, maybe they, you know, raised their hands just a little bit, and, you know, they know this, they got into this groove of knowing what the right religious activity was, and, hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm going to church. And James says, well, those are good things. You might even profess to believe in in this Jesus person. And the people that James was around, I think, the way that he words this, I think they thought that they were in right standing with God because they did this activity. But they're not. And James points that out to him. Uh, A careful reading of James uh, shows us um, that the people's lives were filled with a bunch of bad fruit. That they had some behaviors that just kind of worked their way in and Scripture would address it, but it would not change them at all. Their lives didn't model the gospel message that they were learning. And James says, hey, we got to be better than that. 
he says, uh, it would be like owning a set of golf clubs doesn't make you a golfer, right? Owning a fishing pole doesn't make you a good fisher person if it just sits in the closet. If you want to be a golfer, you have to take the clubs out of the closet and you have to go practice, right? You have to go use them. And James' message, in a nutshell, is you can't just have the Bible on your shelf and open it up once or twice a week and not put it into practice. That's it in a nutshell. He tells us to humbly receive the word of truth that's inside us. That it needs to transform our thinking, it needs to transform our acting, and he wants his people, he wants us, because we have, it's been passed down to us, he wants us to stop deceiving ourselves, and he wants us to start valuing care and compassion and what the gospel actually is. So with all of that, uh, I'd ask you to stand with me. That's kind of where we left off last week, and so now we launch into uh, chapter 2 starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the one who is poor, well, you know, you, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. You, you have not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you get that last phrase? Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You, you can be seated. <clears throat> i got to leave off there because that's probably way more than we can get to. Um, have you ever been on the receiving end of favoritism? Anybody? Anybody got special, like, VIP treatment, or, you know, you got a special parking place, or, you know, just some designation that said, hey, you're important. 
I remember back in the summer of 1988, uh, I was signed up to go on a missions trip over, and we were doing uh, like backyard Bible clubs and this pro- these program things uh, all throughout Europe. And before we left, we had this boot camp in, it was somewhere in Minnesota at this old uh, army base and part of our work project at the, this um, training was our team was responsible for dismantling the hurricane fence that was all the way around the perimeter. And on top of the hurricane fence was three uh, strands of barbed wire. So we got to take all that down and then coil it all up. And that summer, back in the Midwest, it was like a drought year. It was hot. It was... I, I'm exaggerating, but it felt like 100 degrees. And if you know anything about the Midwest, 100 degrees comes along with really dense humidity. So I don't do well in the heat very much. You know, I kind of like 67 is about the perfect temperature for me. I know some of you are like, hey, you're in the right place now. Um, So we're working day after day, like hours on end, rolling. Whoa. Whoa. That was breakfast. We were working hours on end, coiling this fence, and we're, you know, scraping ourselves, and we're caught up, and and we're just like, when are we going to go to Europe and do our ministry part? What's this is enough of this team building stuff? So about Thursday night of that week, and we get back into our camp, and we're, you know, we're in tents, and and somebody says. Hey, if you are a, a PK, you know PK is the pastor's kid. My, my dad was a pastor when I was growing up. And uh, so I'm like, well, yeah. And there were like one or two others. And there were so many teams, you know, it was a couple hundred kids. And, but there were maybe, oh, 11 or 12 of us throughout this whole camp. And uh, they're like, hey, we, uh, we want to talk to you for a little bit. Okay. So they bring us over here, and they, they load us into this van. I'm like, where are we going? They're like, well, we got something special for you. Then they took us into town, and, you know, we had been, our, our meals on this whole ministry trip consisted of malto meal for breakfast every day. We did get to go back and forth between chocolate and vanilla. Lunchtime was macaroni and cheese light on the cheese. You know, so there's this some, something we put over the top of it, and then I don't even remember what dinner was, but it wasn't much better than that. And so, and I'm, you know, we're hungry, and we, we pull into Dairy Queen. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And they say, well, you know what, you can just get anything off the menu you want, and then, you know, so we had some good food, and, and then, hey, you want some ice cream? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was awesome. They, they wanted to do something special for the PKs, but I'm thinking in my mind, you know, we've had this whole week of team building stuff, and I got buddies that are back there, and they would just be dying to, you know, if they knew that we were enjoying ice cream on a 100-degree day. Then there's other time, I was in line, I don't even remember exactly where it was, but there was, I mean, the line was here to the front door, and we had been waiting there for a while. 
somebody from the place we were going, they, they walked by the line and they recognized who I was. And I, you know, I had really no special designation at all at, at this particular meeting. I mean, I, don't, I wasn't even you know, one of the speakers. And I think, hey, you know, come with me. And we went in the side door. I'm thinking all, why, are, why do I get to go in this door? Uh, kind of this passage came to mind. James isn't down for this kind of behavior. He says no favoritism. Uh, but it must have been a problem in his church. And so what I want to do this morning is explore these verses that we read, and I've kind of condensed it down into four sentences. And the four sentences are this. One, don't show favoritism, period. That's the first sentence. Don't show favoritism. Second sentence, this is not God's way. Third sentence, you can do better than this by obeying God's law. And sentence number four is that last phrase we read in the text, mercy triumphs over judgment. So those are the four sentences. I just want to look briefly at, at each of those uh, this morning. In verse one, he kind of launches in uh, to this whole thing. He gives some very pointed instruction to us. Don't show favoritism is what he says. And if you are doing it, knock it off. That's how it kind of comes across. Don't do it. Resist the temptation. I know you've seen favoritism happen. Maybe you've the, been the one in line and somebody gets, you know, taken out of the line and given preferential treatment and you've got to wait another hour to get in and, and they, they just go right up to the front of the line. Or people who get these special perks and all these all other sorts of things. Um, I, I know you've seen it happen. You could read verse 1 something like this. You could say, do not try to combine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with the worship of a person's social status. That would be a fair translation of verse 1 as well. Faith and favoritism are totally incompatible. When we play favorites, here's a little bit of what's happening. When we play favorites, we are discriminating. And what we're doing is we are becoming judges. And when we judge other people, we've put ourselves in the place of God. And when we put ourselves in the place of God, that's idolatry. So James says, don't show favoritism. He continues this line of thinking um, from, the, from the previous section in, in chapter 1, where he says uh, that we should not let the world contaminate us, that we should guard ourselves against the corruption of the world. That's how he kind of ends chapter 1 and, and then moves into chapter 2. And if you think about that, don't let the world contaminate you. Well, the world is fantastic at playing this game of favoritism. There's, there's lots of criteria that we can look at to play favorites. I mean, we can look at somebody's wealth. We can look at somebody's intelligence. We can look at somebody's race or their religion or their gender or their talents or their looks or their personality. We could just make a long list of things that, hey, you know what? I, I like that better than this. And so, hey, come on over here. James says, don't do that. James specific example that he gives us is that uh, some people are favoring the rich over the poor. That's the example that he lays out in, in the text for us. And the thing is, some of us are probably sitting here, you know, 
I don't, Pastor Dave, I don't know if I really have a problem with this. And I got to tell you that we are all at risk. We might not all practice on a regular basis showing favoritism, but we're all at least at risk of these things influencing our decisions, our feelings, our actions. James says, don't, don't do it. Don't play that game. Don't allow yourselves to give or withhold love or friendship or kindness or mercy or glory to anyone based on their external appearance. That's what James says. Now, it sounds a whole lot easier than it actually is. I mean, think about it. We all have, we all have certain people that we kind of just gravitate towards, right? Who become our friends. And if you think about it and you look at your friends, they're, they're a lot like you. And so we have this natural gravitational pull towards people that are similar to us. And when that happens, then we run the risk of thinking that other people are, you know, different and, and will show favoritism to the people who are more like us. And <laughs> there's people that, we're, that we gravitate towards. But then on the flip side of that coin is there's some people that we just, don't naturally connect with. You know, the ones that wear the label E-G-R, extra grace required. You know, there's just some people, you got to be honest, that eh, no thanks. So there's some that we gravitate towards, and then there's others that, eh, you know, I don't think so. Now, in verses 2 through 4, James gives us the specific example from his church. Some rich person comes in, and they're all decked out in, with gold on their fingers and, you know, the top-notch name-brand toga of the day. And, and then there's another person who comes in, and, you know, they're just kind of tattered and, and worn. And you can, you can picture this. Or, or maybe, maybe I could put it in terms like this. Um, say some, you know, any given Sunday here that... Uh, one person comes in, you know, a, a celebrity. Let's say Russell Wilson shows up here one Sunday morning, all right? So Russell Wilson walks through the door, and he's all dressed to the nines, and he's got his pretty little girl with him. And, uh, I mean, you can picture this, right? What's happening? You know, he's, he's got a Super Bowl ring on, and he kind of flashes that thing, like, hey, I'm important. I'm somebody special. And right behind Russell Wilson's entourage, this person who's, who comes straight out of the Hub City Mission, they're kind of worn out looking, tattered clothes, you know, they're just kind of walking like this, and they're just looking for a place where they can find some love, hear the word of the Lord. Both Russell Wilson and this person show up at the same time. Um, who are you talking about? Who are you nudging your neighbor? Hey, do you think he'll sign my Bible? <laughs> you know, do you, think, do you think it would be awkward if I said, hey, Russell, can I get a little selfie with you? You're thinking about him. I guarantee somebody's already come over and found me. Hey, pastor, do you know who's here today? Russell Wilson's in the house. You think maybe during offering time or, or announcements that you could just say, hey, thanks for being here, Russell. I'm so glad that you're here. Tell me I'm wrong. This is what James is talking about when he outlines this in the text. 
And so it seems kind of... We read over this section kind of quickly sometimes because we're like, no, that'll never happen here. But then when we lay it out in terms like that, oh, well, maybe I am at risk of showing favoritism. And we live in a society that wants to bend over backwards to take care of the rich and the famous and the important and the powerful. It's everywhere out there. We live in a celebrity culture. People get starstruck when they run into people who are, you know, famous. I mean, everybody these days thinks that, hey, sometime I'm going to be famous too. And with our up-and-coming generations, that's if you, if you read the studies, that, that, that's something that we're at severe risk of right now is that, that everybody thinks they're going to be famous and there's this big gap, there's this letdown when you figure out, oh, I might not be. It happens in some churches, too. Uh, we, we think that, um, you know, when important people come in or rich people come in, you know, a lot of times it'll cross your mind, oh, I wonder, I bet counting the offering today would be pretty nice. You know, or it's about time we get some important people in here because we'll raise our status up in the community. And these are the things that, that cross people's minds. These are the things that James says, hey, these, this is what works its way in, and that's how the, that's what the world plays. This is the game the world plays, and, and there's no place for that in the church at all. The risk is... And, and we do these things because we somehow feel like, hey, you know, if, if I get in the good graces, if I, if I take care of, of these people over here, then, then my status is going to be raised, too, by association. People will see me with them. Hey, did you, hear, did you hear that Russell Wilson went to the Nazarene Church in Centralia? You know, you'd think, wow, that was pretty good. You think you'd go out from here and tell somebody? Yeah, probably. James says this behavior in church is unacceptable. You could say it's anti-gospel. James warns of this kind of discrimination, and he says it reflects evil motives, that there's this division of loyalty to God and a desire for the benefits of worldly pleasure and benefit and wealth. So if you think about it, how, how about in church? Have you seen favoritism in church before? Some of you are saying, oh, you're not going to go there, are you? Yeah. Well, James did, so I figure it's a free shot, right? Ask yourself this question. Do you give your best, your absolute best, to everyone or only certain people? That's what James is getting at here. Special treatment for certain people is called favoritism. So when we think about what we do as a church, when we think about our ministries, we have to ask questions like, well, when it comes time for a meal, do we cook the best for everybody? Do we decorate our best for everybody? Do we roll out our finest for everybody? Do we host everyone equally? See, the special things that we do for one, we have to be ready to do them for everybody. 
That's what James says. See, all this favoritism that we've been talking about, how it can go on you know, in, our, in our personal lives, it can, he's really specifically talking about church environment here. With all of this playing of favorites, here's the, this is where the gut punch comes in. Uh, James says that if this is a regular part of your practice, that you may not really be a follower of Jesus. Listen to what James says. If you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of Jesus. And then in verse 4, he says, you are evil-minded judges. That hurts, right? That's an ouch. And so we've been talking about it from one angle, but we, need to, we really need to be careful here because there's another perspective that we kind of need to include in this conversation. We're not just talking about other people and, and our outward behavior of, of showing favor to others. We're also talking about uh, us as well. When we are the ones who may receive the special treatment. See, what he's... It's also... Uh, I think he's also saying that if any part of us expects special treatment... If we start to believe that we deserve some special uh, entitlement or treatment, um, that we need to repent immediately. James' instruction can also be read as don't expect favoritism. It goes both ways. And it kind of sounds like this in a church setting whether it's spoken out loud or it's just a, just a fleeting thought that goes through our minds. And um, you've probably heard this in church before, of course, not here, but other places that you've visited. Uh, it kind of sounds like this. Well, I've been a member of this church for decades. You know how many of the bills that I've paid around here? I'm in charge of, you know, fill in the blank. Or you know who my dad is? Do you know what my grandma did for this church? James, James is, he's got his baseball bat out for that one too. He says, knock it off. There's no place for that kind of thinking in God's kingdom. Don't show favoritism. Don't discriminate. Don't give special treatment or privileges based on one's wealth or status or looks or talent. Don't do it. Knock it off. But why? Why, James? Why? What's the big deal? Why can't we go out of our way to honor someone that uh, we think could help our cause? Why? It sounds like one of those three-year-old's questions, right? And the temptation for us, or for me to say is, because I told you so. Just read Brother James and believe it. Knock it off. Don't show favoritism. But why? Well, it's a whole lot easier to say because I told you so than it is to, you know, flesh out and give you a detailed information. Don't play with knives. Why, Dad? Well, because I, because I said so. Is, that's a whole lot easier answer than, well, because a knife, son, is a tool. It's not a toy. 
And sometimes when you're playing with a knife, you may, you know, carelessly cut your finger. And if you were to carelessly cut your finger, your mom would find out about it, and she would wonder, well, why do you have a knife in the first place? And then she would be at odds with me. And then if mom and dad are at odds, <laughs> you know what's going to happen. It's a whole lot easier to say, don't play with knives. Why? Because I said so, right? So we were asking James, why? In verse 5, he gives us an answer. He says, uh, listen, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Pay attention, pay attention, listen, says James. He's kind of asking the question, isn't it clear by now that God operates a little bit differently than the favoritism game? This is not God's way. That's sentence number two. One, don't show favoritism now or to the why. You know, when we want to ask that question, well, why can't we? You know, what's, what's the big deal? What's wrong with this? And he says it's not God's way. God wants something different. And when you show favoritism and discriminate based on external things, you're, you're really dishonoring God and you're dishonoring the poor and you're really showing that you really don't understand the whole gospel message in the first place. I like what N.T. Wright says. He's one of my favorite scholars. He writes, The world is always assessing people, sizing them up, putting them down, establishing a pecking order, and God, who sees and loves all alike, wants the church to reflect his generous universal love in how it behaves. See, God sees things differently than we do. His perspective is, is totally different. I mean, I think about, so the analogy that, that comes to mind for me is, well, back on Logan Street up in Marquette, Michigan, um, you, you know I played hockey, and so street hockey was the thing to do in the neighborhood. And when we would gather as a group of friends on Logan Street to play street hockey, well, okay, let's have a game. Well, to have a game, you got to split up teams, right? And you know the drill. You know, line everybody up along the fence on the playground at school, and then there's two captains. And, you know, what's the goal of the captains? Pick all of the best players, right? I got to pick the best, the fastest, the strongest, the ones who can shoot the best, and I got to have a really good goalie. And, and so, as a captain, the, the goal is to get the best players so you can win the game. That's how it works out on the streets in the playground. And yes, that's, that's kind of like an elementary school level, but you know what? In, in the American culture, that plays all the way up through every facet of life. You got to get the best people, make the best team so that we can be profitable and succeed and get ahead, right? God says, no, that's not how, that's not how God works. It's not God's way, period. This kind of favoritism goes against godly living. I remember words of Paul. If you're, if you're in your Bibles, um, flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one, no one may boast before him. 
God chooses people who the world may overlook and write off. The ones who, you know, it's like the last kid picked for the hockey team. God, God would choose, you know, I want you to be on my team. And we'd be like, what? But that's just how God works. God chose the poor and the marginalized to be rich in faith. And he's not dismissing everybody else. He's just saying, I'm going to choose the poor and the powerless because nobody else will. And so they're included in on this party when everybody else, when our temptation is to write them off. That's not how God works. God's kingdom is promised to anybody who loves him. Anyone. Jesus invited the poor and the outcast to his table. He said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. And when you show favoritism, you're totally dishonoring those who are poor, those that are marginalized, those that you are overlooking to favor somebody else. That there's no integrity in a faith that cozies up to privilege and power and turns its back on need. And as James has said, faith that is not demonstrated with consistent action is really no faith at all. James calls us to embrace both as the people of God. Embrace everyone, regardless of status. I mean, in today's terms, you know, we hear the the 99% and the 1%, that bickering back and forth. God says, fully with that. Embrace both. So followers of Jesus, when people come into your fellowship, everyone should get the same exact treatment. I love them all. Everyone needs the love and compassion of Jesus, and it's to be expressed through you and through me. I remember a bunch of uh, ragtag guys who were, who were telling their leader, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's really not part of your job description. You know, you're so much better than that. But this leader, he didn't, it didn't appear that he listened very closely to what they were telling him. He, he just kind of went ahead with what he was doing. He took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist and, and he knelt down in front of them and he washed their feet. Don't show favoritism. It's not God's way. Verse 8, James says, you can do better than this. You can obey God's royal law. You can love your neighbor as yourself. So what James is doing, essentially he's come all the way around, full circle, back to his main underlying point of the whole letter. You must be doers of the word and not just hearers. Be obedient to the royal law of God. If you want to please him, you should do what he says. Paul says it in Romans, don't be in debt to anyone, don't be in debt to anyone except for the obligation to love one another. And when you love one another, you fulfill the law of God. You can do better than this, says James. Speak and act like those who will be judged by the law of freedom. Don't just hear about the law of freedom, do it. What James is saying through the, the later 
verses that we are reading when he's talking about, you know, one sin versus another. What he's saying is when we show favoritism, we're breaking the whole law. If you break one rule, you break the whole thing. And what he's trying to, what he's trying to dismantle inside us is our temptation to say, well, you know what, you know, that's no big deal. What he's saying is, no, what you're doing when you show favoritism is actually sin. Just as much as these other ones that he outlined. If you're a lawbreaker, you're a lawbreaker, period. That's what he's trying to say. And so favoritism is something that goes against the word of God, and so you're breaking the word of God. You're a lawbreaker. That's what he's trying to say there. So he says, speak and act like those who will be judged by this law of freedom. You know, um, what he's pointing out is he's trying to get us to understand when we fail to do the word. And when we recognize in ourselves that we've failed at something, that should be a red flag that goes up in our life. You know, if, you, um, if you're sitting here, and maybe last week or the week before, you just feel like, wow, this is hard stuff. I'm feeling a little bit convicted. That's actually a good sign that it shows that you care. But if you're sitting here and you're like, eh, yeah, whatever. I don't, it's not really hitting me in the heart. I really don't have any intention of putting this stuff into practice. James is calling into question whether or not we're truly believers. And, and I know when there's messages that are, you know, maybe more hard-hitting than others, um, sometimes they hurt. And they get to me too because I have to spend my, my whole week thinking about this, and I love you too much to let some things go unsaid. And um, my prayer above anything else is that I want all of us, I want you to submit to Christ. I want Him to be your Lord and your Savior. I want His Word to penetrate your life and work its way in and transform you and set you free, and I want you to be obedient to Him. So what do we do? There's all sorts of things. We get to this final sentence, which is mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's, you know, there's multiple places in Scripture where we, where we get to this. Uh, you know, Jesus tells all sorts of parables. He tells one about um, the guy who the king forgives this huge debt, just sets him free. And then the guy goes out, and there's, a, there's one of his servants who owes him just a pittance of what he owed the king. And and he held him accountable, and the king got word of it and brought him in. He said, why? You know, I showed mercy to you. Why didn't you show mercy to him? And James reminds us that, you know, you're going to be judged by this in the same way in which you've acted. Those who extend mercy will get mercy. Those who, who don't show mercy, you know, you're probably not going to be showing mercy. Uh, you know, the, 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 what I want to do is sometimes hearing it from you know, different words is, is helpful. And I, uh, I brought a, a book that I'd like to read for you. It's called The Rainbow Fish. And um, Glenn's got the pictures of the book on the screen, and this is Uncle Dave's uh, reading chair. <clears throat> I just want to read you the story. And I want you to listen for the echoes of what James is saying about favoritism and demonstrating mercy. And, you know, when the Word of God penetrates our lives, that we start thinking differently. We find value in different things. 
And so here, here goes. This is The Rainbow Fish uh, by Marcus Pfister. We've read this book a lot in our family throughout the years. It goes like this. A long way out in the deep blue sea, there lived a fish. Not just an ordinary fish, but the most beautiful fish in the entire ocean. His scales were every shade of blue and green and purple with sparkling silver scales among them. The other fish were amazed at his beauty. They, they called him Rainbow Fish. Come on, Rainbow Fish, they would call. Come on and play with us. But the Rainbow Fish would just glide past, proud and silent, letting his scales shimmer. One day, a little blue fish followed after him. Rainbow Fish, he called. Wait for me. Please give me one of your shiny scales. They are so wonderful, and you have so many. You want me to give you one of my special scales? Who do you think you are? cried the rainbow fish. Get away from me. Shocked, the little blue fish swam away. He was so upset, he told all his friends what had happened, and from then on, no one would have anything to do with the rainbow fish. They turned away when he swam by. What good were the dazzling, shimmering scales with no one to admire them? Now he was the loneliest fish in the entire ocean. One day, he poured out his troubles to the starfish. I really am beautiful. Why doesn't anybody like me? Well, I can't answer that for you, said the starfish. But if you go beyond the coral reef to a deep cave, you will find the wise octopus. Maybe she can help you. The rainbow fish found the cave. It was very dark inside, and he couldn't see anything. Then suddenly, two eyes caught him in their glare, and the octopus emerged from the darkness. I have been waiting for you, said the octopus with a deep voice. The waves have told me your story. This is my advice. Give a glittering scale to each of the other fish. You will no longer be the most beautiful fish in the sea, but you will discover how to be happy. I can't, the rainbow fish started to say. But the octopus had already disappeared into a dark cloud of ink. Give away my scales? My beautiful, shining scales? Never, never. How could I ever be happy without them? Suddenly, he felt the light touch of a fin. The little blue fish was back. Rainbow fish, please don't be angry. I just want one little scale. The rainbow fish wavered. Only one very small, shimmery scale, he thought. Well, maybe I wouldn't miss just one. Carefully, the rainbow fish pulled out the smallest scale and gave it to the little fish. Thank you, thank you very much, the little blue fish bubbled playfully as he tucked the shiny scale in among his blue ones. A rather peculiar feeling came over the rainbow fish. For a long time, he watched the little blue fish just swim back and forth with his new scale glittering in the water. The little blue fish whizzed through the ocean with his scale flashing, so it didn't take long before the rainbow fish was surrounded by the other fish. Everyone wanted a glittering scale. The rainbow fish 
shared his scales left and right, and the more he gave away, the more delighted he became. When the water around him filled with glimmering scales, he at last felt at home among the other fish. Finally, the rainbow fish had only one shining scale left. His most prized possessions had been given away, yet he was very happy. Come on, rainbow fish, they called. Come and play with us. Here I come, said the rainbow fish, and happy as a splash, he swam off to join his friends. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says, don't show favoritism. It's not God's way. You can do better by obeying the word of God, and mercy triumphs over judgment. People of God said, amen.